This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Welcome to Inside COVID-19. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. In this episode, we examine changes to the COVID-19 virus that has altered the world over the past year. Dr. Richard Lessels, an infectious diseases specialist at CRISP, the KwaZulu-Natal Research and Innovation Sequencing Platform, which is part of the University of KwaZulu-Natal, helps us make sense of the latest developments in the spread of COVID-19 in South Africa. He also provides an update on how the new variations of the disease have changed the way it is spreading, He warns that the pandemic is still at an early stage. In this episode, we also hear insights from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg Public School of Health Vice Dean, Josh Sharfstein, about the evolution of the virus. Also coming up, an update from the Western Cape that indicates that hospitals are buckling under the pressure of a rapidly rising rate of COVID-19 in the province that attracts huge numbers of holidaymakers at this time of the year. First, the COVID-19 news-making world headlines. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. More than 78 million people have now tested positive for COVID-19 and more than 1.7 million people have died of the disease around the world. That's according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center, which lists the U.S. as the worst affected country. The United States has reported more than 322,000 deaths. South Africa is the hardest hit country in Africa, is number 18 on the list of the countries with the highest rates of COVID-19, with just under 1 million cases and about 25,000 reported deaths. South Africa is also experiencing a sharp uptick in the number of cases. The new COVID-19 strain that emerged in the UK is possibly already in the US, Germany, France and Switzerland, according to officials in those countries. Denmark has also reported another variant of COVID-19. It calls it N439K. It says this mutation of the virus is concerning. The mutation, which was first discovered in Romania in May, is different from the one spreading in the UK and also from the one that infected the Danish mink farms earlier this year. The COVID-19 infection rate in US counties dependent on meatpacking jobs was as high as 10 times the average level of rural counties last spring, That's according to a U.S. Department of Agriculture report. Sweden plans to enact new pandemic laws on January the 15th that will give it the right to shutter businesses and public transport to help tackle a spike in cases. Despite a resurgence of infections, Sweden has so far stopped short of a full lockdown, partly because it lacks the legal framework to do more. Nicola Sturgeon has been caught flouting COVID-19 rules by speaking to pensioners in a pub without wearing a mask. The Scottish First Minister has had to apologise for her lapse after months of advocating draconian regulations. The SNP leader was photographed chatting to three women at a wake last week in Edinburgh. Rules drawn up by her Scottish devolved government state that customers in hospitality settings must wear a face covering unless seated at a table. National Health Service bosses in Britain have raised concerns about the rollout of the coronavirus vaccine and have asked the government to speed up distribution. With more than half of hospital trusts and two-thirds of GPs yet to receive supplies, 
Dr. Richard Vautry, the chair of the British Medical Association's GP committee, has said we need millions of doses to be made available as soon as possible, urgently. Government sources have also warned that there is a high chance of a full national lockdown in the new year. Earlier this week, Britain recorded 691 coronavirus deaths in one day. This is the second highest daily toll since last May and a jump of a fifth in one week. A mass coronavirus testing program for lorry drivers will relieve congestion at British ports following an agreement to reopen the border between France and the UK. Rail, air and sea services from Britain will resume after Paris agreed to ease the ban imposed after the discovery of a new strain of COVID. South Africa's National Department of Health and the Solidarity Fund have announced that the down payment of 19.2 million US dollars has been made to the Vaccine Alliance to secure South Africa's entry into the COVAX facility. The down payment is 15% of the total cost of securing access to vaccines for 10% of the population, which is roughly 6 million people. Joining us on the line is Dr. Richard Lessels, Infectious Diseases Specialist at CRISP, the KwaZulu-Natal Research and Innovation Sequencing Platform, which is part of the University of KwaZulu-Natal. One of the things that we've been doing throughout this pandemic in South Africa, and, and which has been kind of coordinated across the country, is what we call this genomic surveillance. And what that means is we've, we've been monitoring um, the viruses that have been spreading in South Africa in the different provinces and tracking over time what's happening to the virus as it continues to spread. And so when we saw this um, kind of second wave or this resurgence in cases happening uh, recently, um, we were particularly focused with the genomic surveillance to understand what might be happening there and what might be driving that, that resurgence in cases because it started not all that long after we'd come out of that first wave of the, of the epidemic. And that's really where this, this finding of this new virus lineage or variant has come from, is that surveillance network of, of laboratories around the country that have been tracking uh, the virus. And how many mutations are there in South Africa? Well, that's, so that's a dif- difficult question because I, I, I think here we need to be clear with the, with the definitions. What, what you may be asking is how many variants there are. So how many different forms of this virus are circulating in South Africa? And until recently, there were many, many uh, variants of the virus circulating. So these are all just viruses with very slight differences in the genetic code. And they're all the same virus still, behaving in the same way, uh, everything the same about it, but just, just maybe one or more mutation or change in the genetic code. And so we've been tracking that, and that's not given us any cause for concern. That's quite normal that, that you will get these these multiple different variants of the virus circulating. But what we saw from the beginning of October um, in the Eastern Cape and and now in the Western Cape and in KwaZulu-Natal as well, is a new variant of the virus almost taking over very rapidly and becoming 
kind of the dominant variant of the virus that we were seeing in patients being diagnosed with with um, SARS-CoV-2 infection. And so it was almost um, taking over from all the other variants that were that were spreading until October and and this became the the most dominant one. Just for non-medical experts, what is the difference between a variant and a mutation? So so the mutation is what happens in the genetic code of the virus. So when we talk about a mutation, we're talking about a change in the genetic code. So if you think of the genetic code as just a series of letters, and in this virus, that's a series of about 30,000 letters. That's the size of the genome of the virus. And, And in this virus, that's RNA. A mutation just means that one letter in that code has changed. Some of those changes in the genetic code make a difference to the protein of the virus. So if you remember high school biology, um, the, the RNA makes protein, and the protein is then what makes up the virus. And so some of the mutations change the structure of the protein, but still do nothing to the behavior of the, of the virus, how the virus transmits, what kind of disease it, it, it causes and things. But some mutations in the genetic code change the structure of the protein and also change the function of the virus then. So they change the behavior of the virus in some way. And that's what we're currently concerned about with this new variant and the variant that's a different variant but is being detected in the in the United Kingdom at the moment. We're worried with both of these uh, new variants that it seems to be more transmissible. And by that I mean it seems to be more efficient at spreading from person to person. And what that means is it then becomes even more difficult to contain and control the spread of the virus. Is it true that both of these new variants are affecting younger people more and healthy people? So that's not quite clear yet. There's, there was a concern that from doctors on the ground that they were seeing uh, more young people who were sick in this kind of resurgence of cases and then this second wave. But at the moment, we're, we're not clear whether that's a feature of this virus and, and this new variant, or whether it's just that there were many more young people getting infected, and therefore a small proportion of those were, were getting sick, but, but that was a bigger number in total. And so the hospitals were seeing a few more young people who were very sick. It's something that we're urgently looking at in the in the kind of hospital data, just to understand uh, what's going on. But at, at the moment, we don't have any clear evidence um, that this new variant of the virus causes more severe disease or or any different disease. How does it change the way we're experiencing the pandemic in South Africa? We're not in control of this epidemic. We're not controlling the spread of the virus in our communities. 
and what we're seeing uh, rapidly happening in, in different provinces is the health system becoming overwhelmed again. Even if this virus is not causing more severe disease, the fact that it's transmitting so efficiently and causing many more cases means that our health systems really struggle and, and are, are going to struggle. And then we're going to see poor outcomes because of that. We're going to see, unfortunately, uh, many more deaths uh, because the health system is, is struggling to manage the, the, the number of cases that are, that are coming through. What we think is that this variant of the virus spreads more easily between person to person. Now, even with that, we're, we don't yet understand the, the mechanism for that. What we know about this variant and, and the, the change that we see in the virus with the mutations is a change in what's called the spike protein. And people that have been following this, this virus a lot will understand that spike protein is the kind of multiple spiky bits that, that, that come out from the core of the virus. And that spike is what latches on, hooks on, to the receptors on the outside of the cells in our body. And it allows the virus to gain entry into the cells. And so what we think is that one of the mutations in this new variant we've detected is making it a little bit easier for that spike to hook on to, to the cells inside our body and therefore makes it a little bit easier to gain entry into the cells. So in that sense, in answer to your question, yes, we think this variant may be associated with, with kind of it being easier to be infected by this virus. What do we actually know about how the virus spreads from one person to the next? Do you have to cough? Can you just breathe in the virus? What, is, what are the practical implications of all of this? We know a lot about how this virus spreads. There are still some un unanswered questions, but we know the, the, the most important information. This virus spreads wherever people are in close proximity to each other. And it spreads particularly where many people are in close proximity, in confined spaces, and in spaces where there's very poor ventilation. So by and large, it the spread is happening in indoor spaces where people are coming together and they're in close contact with each other. It does not require coughing and sneezing, um, just talking and breathing, singing, shouting, um, the, the virus can spread. It spreads by somebody who has the infection emitting tiny particles from, from the mouth or the nose some of these are a little bit bigger particles, some are smaller, and these particles travel through the air and are then breathed in, usually, um, by somebody who's, who's uh, surrounding that person. And so the interventions that we need to take to slow down the spread are all the things that you're constantly hearing about. It's reducing the number of contacts that you make and, and particularly in 
closed, enclosed spaces um, with poor ventilation indoors um, where many people are congregating. It's the, the, the mask wearing is important because the principle of the masks is about um, if I am infected and I don't yet know because I may not have symptoms, but I can still be infectious before I get symptoms, the mask is, is just helping to prevent these particles that come from my mouth from being emitted into the, into the air surrounding me. And so it reduces the chances of somebody else breathing in those particles. We've had feedback from the Western Cape government about masks, and they did some research there, and they found that six of nine masks being used in hospitals were not actually effective in uh, preventing the spread of COVID-19. What does this tell us about the types of masks we should be wearing, and what does your research tell us? Is it enough to wear any cloth over your mouth? Yeah, so I, so I think it's 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 good to just clarify there that that study that I believe you're talking about um, that was uh, looking at masks that are used by healthcare workers, and and those masks the main principle of those is that they're being used to try and protect the healthcare worker from breathing in these these particles, these droplets and aerosols that are in the air. The masks for the general public to use that I was talking about, the principle is more that it's, it's preventing you from emitting these particles into the air. So there's a difference. Now, that study was looking at one particular type of mask that healthcare's were using and just showed some problems with some of the masks that were being supplied. Many of the healthcare workers are not are not using that type of mask. There's there's lots of different types of masks being used. It is critical that we that we have the right masks to protect our healthcare workers because we're still seeing a lot of healthcare worker infections and and that's really troubling at a time when the healthcare system is really really stretched. Um, so it is critical that we that we do supply the healthcare workers with the right masks, but masks are only one small part of of protecting healthcare workers uh, from this virus in hospitals. And there's many many other things that are done in hospitals to uh, to protect healthcare workers. What do you think the government should be doing now in the light of this new information? Well, I think it's very challenging at the moment. Um, the, it's clear that the spread of this virus is, is uncontrolled at the moment. And the worry that we all have is, is about the further spread of this new variant and to different parts of the country. And that all the mobility of people, the, the, the moving around of people over the holiday period is going to help to spread this virus to the different parts of the country. I think it's clear to me that the messages that are coming to the public about acting responsibly and the physical distancing, the mask wearing and things, it seems that they're not cutting through at the moment and, and that there's still a gap in, in what we want to be happening and what is actually happening on the ground. 
And I think that there, there does need to be serious consideration to, to additional restrictions to make clear that this is a concern to us and that, and that we need to uh, protect the hospitals from getting completely overwhelmed in this second wave. How does this change with the variations of COVID-19? How does this impact on vaccine rollout? So, so two things I'd say there. I mean, it, firstly, it just highlights how critical it is um, that vaccine rollout is done um, rapidly and done equitably across the world. And it was very reassuring to hear that we have now committed the funding to get this first tranche of vaccines um, next year. We do have concerns about the new variant of the virus and and its effect on uh, the immune response. And it is an urgent area of of, uh, investigation for us to understand whether this new variant could affect um, how well the vaccines work. We don't know, we don't have the answers to that, um, and it's work that needs to be done. But it is flagging this as a concern that we need to be continually monitoring this virus to understand how the virus is changing, so that if needed, we change the vaccines and other things to deal with the virus. And and that's where um, this work that we've done and this discovery of this new variant is helpful, not just for South Africa, but it's helpful uh, globally so that we understand the changes in the virus and and adapt um, our interventions to deal with that. Before we close off, how do you see this new variant affecting the pandemic and the amount of time we're going to take to get out of this problem? Very good question. I think what it highlights to me and and, and to my colleagues, and, and what I think a lot of people are still not understanding is, we are still in the early stages of this pandemic, unfortunately. We are still in an early stage of our relationship with this virus. And we have underestimated this virus at many steps of this pandemic. And I think what this new variant here in South Africa and the one that's uh, rapidly spreading in the UK and probably now uh, to other countries in Europe, it's a wake-up call that um, we don't know everything about this virus. And if we allow it to continue to spread, then it will continue to evolve to mutate, and we just don't know what the consequences of further evolution of the virus might be, whether it may in time um, evolve into a virus that does cause more severe disease or is even easier to, to, to spread, to transmit. So we really have to double down our efforts to get on top of this virus, get ahead of the virus, and slow the spread down. Because if you stop the virus from spreading, you stop it from evolving. Inside COVID-19, from Biz News.
Next, we hear insights from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg Public School of Health Finance Dean Josh Scharfstein about the evolution of the virus. He speaks to our partners at Bloomberg. Joshua, I want to talk about Science 101, which is variants or mutations are normal. And the messaging I see, the New York Times picking this up this morning, is pros like you are concerned but not surprised. Should we be concerned and not surprised if the United Kingdom mutation comes to America? Uh, Yes, I think that would be fair to say. Um, There are mutations that are happening in the virus, and some of them may have some sort of relevance to the virus and us. And this one seems to make the virus potentially more contagious. Um, Other mutations may happen that have other effects. Um, And it's important to keep an eye on it. It really shows the field of genetic epidemiology and why it's important. My guess is if it's really been spreading in London for quite a period of time, it's probably here somewhere. Um, But it's, uh, you know, without a, a lot of surveillance, it's hard to know. What is our knowledge of the vaccine and the spikes on a coronavirus? Would you suggest that we have really good knowledge of the the molecular back and forth between a vaccine and uh, the, the, the spikes of the virus? Well, something that's important to understand is that the way the vaccine works is it uses the, a big part of the virus, the, the, particular, the spike protein, and not just one little teeny, teeny, teeny piece of that protein. So that if there's a mutation in any particular teeny piece of the protein, it's unlikely that that's going to mean that the immune system can't respond because the immune system is picking up all different parts of the protein as it's responding. So that's what's giving people confidence that, you know, something that makes the virus spread a little faster is not going to evade the vaccine. It would, there would need to be an awful lot of changes to the protein in order to evade the vaccine. That's, that is what's giving, I think, the virologists some sense of confidence that it's very unlikely that this is going to be a problem for the vaccine. That's the better news when it comes to the variant. There's a question, though, as Paul Hunter of East Anglia was talking to us earlier. He said that given the fact that wearing masks and social distancing may not be sufficient to stave off the spread of this more contagious strain, that this could prolong the pandemic by a number of months. Do you agree with that assessment? Well, I think it's pretty likely that social distancing and wearing masks is helpful for this variant. I mean, it's not, it doesn't have magical powers. It can't, um, if people aren't near each other, it can't spread. So this is a moment when we have to really realize that it's both the vaccine and what we do that drives the population rate down. And as that comes down, we get to do more things in our lives. So it's, you know, a real sign that, It's not enough just to wait for the vaccine. All right, but just uh, even if people perhaps aren't as vigilant as they ought to be, as we have seen consistently, which is probably the reason why we are seeing the spread of the virus to such a degree in so many places around the world, how much does this change the trajectory of the pandemic and lengthen the time before we return to some sort of normalcy? Well, I mean, I agree with the premise that it takes both of these things to make a difference. And if you have more spread, because people aren't vigilant, because the strain is a little more contagious, and people maybe they're not as excited to get the vaccine, or you don't see people getting vaccinated, um, you know, as the vaccine doses become available. Either of those two things can prolong the pandemic, no question about it. And so you really need both to bring the pandemic to an end as quick as possible.
Joshua, comment on what CDC is saying about the age of 75. What's magical about the age of 75 versus something younger or, for that matter, older? Well, the CDC has a very difficult challenge trying to figure out who gets the next group of vaccines. And, you know, the good news is within a reasonably short period of time, these distinctions won't matter because there'll be a lot more vaccine. I think they pick 75 because the rate of death is is higher, over 75, and they wanted to also include some critical essential workers who really been putting themselves in harm's way for all the rest mm-hmm. of us. So they're trying to a little bit split between the people who are at the highest risk of death and the people at the highest risk of catching it. And many of those people have chronic illnesses and have gotten seriously ill and even died. So I think, you know, they did the best they could. I think it was a reasonable decision. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. The Western Cape government has signaled the alarm that the province is not coping with the second wave of COVID-19 infections. Its Premier, Alan Windy, and his advisers warned this week that hospital capacity has dried up. Private hospitals are sending patients to state hospitals for treatment and non-COVID-related procedures are again being put aside. The province is looking to recruit at least 1,300 more healthcare workers as more people head to hospital for treatment for severe cases of COVID-19. Oxygen usage is up. And a graph indicates that bodies are piling up at state mortuaries. Here are some of the key takeaways from a briefing to Western Cape residents. You're listening to Dr. Keith Clutie, health spokesperson for the province. The, the picture that we've been sharing with you is now a very distinct second wave that is significantly higher than the first wave in the Western Cape, with increased use of oxygen, increased hospitalization, increased reported deaths, increased case positivity rate. We see now figures way above what we saw in the first wave in June. Hospitalization and deaths continue to sharply increase since the middle of November for the last four weeks. And um, the key message is the hospitalizations has now exceeded the peak of the first wave and deaths are increasing rapidly. The metro overview, we've seen sharp increases in every geographic area in the metro. And literally every area in the metro, except in Kailicha, has exceeded their first peak. The net reproductive number, um, that's the one that uh, every every person that's infected, how many people will they infect? At the moment, it stands at 1.3. There is evidence that it is starting to flatten for the province overall. But at 1.3, we're still generating quite a lot of new cases. Then uh, the news we all had last Friday, that when we had in the first wave, we had what was called different variants or lineages of the COVID virus. And for the majority part of us in the Western Cape and the country, there were three very clear lineages that was responsible for the first spike in the, in the country. Obviously, Western Cape first and then the others in, 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 in a sequential fashion. What has emerged from October and has now given us explanation of what has happened in the garden route for us is that there's a new dominant lineage. It's a new variant. Um, And um, we've also done the sample in the Cape Flats, and we can now say with confidence that this variant is gone faster than the other variants. And that, to some extent, explains what's happened in garden route and what's happening in the rest of the Western Cape and what is happening in the Eastern Cape and going on to other provinces in the country as well. Your, your 
contact with smaller amounts infects people now, whereas with the other variants, you needed higher amounts to become infected. So what do we and what don't we know about this variant called 501V2? We know that it's unusual for a new variant to contain several mutations. The second thing, it is being reported in other countries, similar variants, not the same variant, similar changes, and that is what the UK has reported clearly over the last 10 to 15 days. There are early signs that this new variant is spreading faster, sometimes faster than the first wave viruses, so we can attest to that in the Garden Route and in the rest of the Western Cape. It is widespread, and it's probably across most of South Africa by now. What don't we know, and it's not useful to speculate about this, is where did it come from, why did it happen, why in Nelson Mandela Bay, the scientists will give us the answers. Is it more severe? The clinicians on the front line will tell you they see more younger people and they see more severe disease in younger people. The question is, are we just seeing more cases and that the proportion of younger people are coming in is more than it was the first time? Or is there a suggestion that this is a more severe disease? We do not know at this point in time. Is it reinfecting people who got infected in the first wave? That means if you had COVID before, are you protected against this variant? We don't know yet. There is no evidence to suggest that it's not, but we don't know yet. And then probably the million dollar question is, will the vaccines that is coming online work against this variant? And again, the scientists will have to guide us which vaccine, if any, or all of them will work against this variant. But the big picture is, there's increasing case numbers everywhere in the province. All the teams are dealing with the increase of cases, but then what comes with increase of cases, increase of people that requires oxygen that comes to our facilities. Therefore, the cases are increasing everywhere. And therefore, because more people are also coming to hospital, more people are starting to die. So the death rates are increasing. If you look in Cape Town then, we can see now, that is the overall picture for the province of Cape Town. We are now starting to exceed the hospitalization we had in the first wave, and it is still increasing, and we expect it to increase still for the next two weeks. And that is the big message we're bringing to you today, is that the platform in the Cape Town is already under pressure. We expect it to become under even more pressure. That's why we need a radical intervention here of changing something that can safeguard the healthcare platform, both for the public and the private sector over the festive season in Cape Town. If we then look at this acute um, availability, I'm gonna go through these quickly. Uh, I said about 105% occupancy in the Metro. You can see the distribution of that. I just wanna highlight the place like Mitchell's Plain Hospital where there's been severe pressures over the last four to five days, running at 115% capacity. Somerset, 133% capacity, and Kailiche, 140% capacity, with other varying capacities. So what does this mean? It means that hospitals themselves have created additional capacity over and above what they are actually um, operating within to add additional beds to accommodate more patients. And this is then our staffing strategy. We're currently looking at 44% of what we, the people we want to employ, and we're looking to employ 1,327 nurses, bringing them into the system. 44% of that is to offer people that's on short-term contract extensions, 
and and really to keep people on people as on community service and to actually keep them in our system. The second 56 percent of that 1,300 is to bring people on through recruitment and appointing them. Again, it's early commencement and new intake for ComSurf and placement of bursary holders. This is specifically for nursing because we found nursing to be the key rate limiting step in our ability to render services. Um, and then there is an official request for the military to, to add a specifically additional staff members into our system. The vaccine strategy very quickly. There is a need and it's become very evident and obvious now that we need a proactive strategy to start accessing or have access to separate approved vaccines in the Western Cape. We are, um, Minister Mbombo has started and we will be uh, engaging the National Minister on this matter. We have technical experts advising us on the formal option appraisal of these available candidate vaccines and it's also obviously linked to the SAPRA approval. Prioritization will be a big issue. Healthcare workers and other essential workers and then the vulnerable groups, especially the elderly and people with comorbidities. And then the demand forecast, we have some estimated numbers for vaccines required per prioritized category, and we're doing the cost estimates and confirmation of the budget. So the next steps is very concrete in terms of SAPRA approval, um, getting the sourcing and distribution strategies so that we can provide vaccines as early as possible in 2021. And that brings to a close your Inside COVID-19 podcast. Until next time. This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery.